This is Guns and Butter. since type 2 diabetes. I was starting to find type 2 diabetes in crocodiles. Now, why would a crocodile have a, a, a genetic disease of humans, right? Maybe he ate a Baptist preacher in Africa that had diabetes and got the gene that way. Well, it's a silly thing, but that's what doctors were proposing. Well, it turns out that all vertebrates, regardless if they're a reptile or a bird or a mammal or a rat or a human, all vertebrates, if they have a nutritional deficiency, will get the same disease from the same nutritional deficiency. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Dr. Joel Wallach. Today's show, a stick of butter a day keeps the doctor away. Dr. Wallach is a veterinarian, naturopathic physician, and holds a postdoctorate fellowship in comparable pathology, as well as being an author and lecturer. He is the author of many books, including Dead Doctors Don't Lie, Epigenetics, The Death of the Genetic Theory of Disease Transmission, Black Gene Lies, and Rhino Express, the saving of the white rhino. Today we discuss Dr. Wallach's groundbreaking comparative pathology study of American, Canadian, and Mexican zoo animals funded by the National Institutes of Health, which led to the authorship of Diseases of Exotic Animals, Epigenetics, the study of environmental effects on gene expression, and the role that nutrition plays in the prevention of degenerative diseases. Dr. Joel Wallach, welcome. Well, thank you, Bonnie. Appreciate your hospitality. You've written many books. Probably the most well-known is entitled Dead Doctors Don't Lie. That's a catchy title. What does it refer to? Well, Bonnie, uh, when I started uh, treating humans, remember, I'm a veterinarian as well as a physician. So when I started treating humans, um, I wanted to look at the record of the medical system and see how well they were doing and I just went to the medical school and, and just reached in, got an armful of the journals of the American Medical Association, and um, added up the death age of the obituaries of uh, 200 doctors divided by 200 and got 58. And I said, oh, my gosh. Um, the average lifespan of medical doctors is 58. Why would anybody want to listen to them on how to live a long, healthful life? That's certainly not a good example. And um, uh, so... I said, only dead doctors don't lie, because if they're taking their own treatments, I don't want their treatment, because their average lifespan is 58. That's where it came from. So you're saying that they're not lying because they're dead? Well, that's the only time a doctor won't lie is when he's dead, because he can't lie, right? And so um, when you look at the medical theories that they've been using for the last 5,000 years, um, Every century, there's thousands of failed medical theories. In the 20th century, Bonnie, and the 21st century are no different. There's thousands of failed medical theories. Uh, for instance, um, being overweight and obese has nothing to do with eating too much or lack of exercise, simple deficiency of a certain class of nutrients. And then uh, there are no genetically transmitted diseases. Uh, there are no autoimmune diseases unless you're born like a bubble boy kind of thing. And then... Um, Uh, You're looking at things like birth defects. There's no genetically transmitted birth defects. They're all caused by nutritional deficiencies of the embryo. Cholesterol and saturated fat don't cause cardiovascular disease. In fact, they're essential nutrients, and you get like dozens of different diseases when you're deficient in cholesterol and saturated fat, including low T, ED, menopause at age uh, 30 instead of 60, 70, uh, adrenal exhaustion, and Alzheimer's disease. Those are all cholesterol and saturated fat deficiency diseases. But the pharmaceutical industry is happy because they get to make Cialis and Viagra 
and statin drugs. You say that there is a very important link between mineral deficiencies in the body and chronic degenerative disease. How did you become convinced that minerals played such an important role in preserving health? Well, I was a pathologist, Bonnie, on a big project for the National Institute of Health from the mid-60s to the mid-70s. I did 20,000 autopsies, some 17,000 and some change of over 454 species of zoo animals, and 3,000 humans, uh, 20 million chemistries, um, 20 million slides of special stains, looking for pollution as a contributor to or the cause of deaths from natural causes. And what I learned was that every birth defect, every death from natural cause has nothing to do with genetics or pollution. It's all just nutritional deficiencies of the embryo. And so in many cases, they're reversible even after the baby's born, like muscular dystrophy and cystic fibrosis. And um, they're certainly all preventable. And so it was very clear that um, these diseases were just simply caused by nutritional deficiencies, most of which were mineral deficiencies. For instance, sudden heart death, cardiomyopathy, heart disease. I've done 1,700 autopsies on kids under the age of 10 that died of that one. It's a deficiency of a single mineral. Congestive heart failure is due to a deficiency of a single vitamin. And then you look at arthritis uh, is multiple mineral and vitamin deficiencies, regardless of age or gender. And then you have things like high blood pressure is due to mineral deficiencies. And so uh, it was very clear that mineral deficiencies are the cause of most of our degenerative diseases. You have said that the medical system has been a self-policing, protected monopoly since 1914, following the Flexner Report. What was the Flexner Report? Well, Flexner was a retired college uh, president, and uh, the Rockefellers hired him, okay? And um, the Carnegies, together with the Rockefellers, hired him to study medical schools and see which ones would use pharmaceuticals as opposed to herbs and natural things. And um, the Flexner Report came out in uh, 1912, actually. And by 1914, uh, the, again, the Carnegies and the Rockefellers had created a union for medical doctors who were going to use pharmaceuticals, which they were going to make. And um, the union was the American Medical Association. And so uh, they're self-policing. Uh, there's no oversight by any agency. And you see this in the newspaper all the time. Doctor found guilty of um, um, misbilling um, Medicare, Medicaid of $375 million. Another doctor, uh, this was from, uh, let's see, Dr. Roy, if you would, uh, from uh, uh, Dallas, Texas. And there was this doctor from Detroit, got 175 years in jail for doing hundreds of surgeries and people that didn't need them just to get the money and so on. And so these things go on all the time because uh, there's no oversight by anybody. There's nobody checking diagnoses. There's nobody checking billing and so forth. And so when you look at them, um, for instance, just infections in hospitals, there's 2 million infections each year in hospitals, of which 90,000 die every year. Now, Bonnie, what would happen if Iran or North Korea were to send over an intercontinental ballistic missile with a either a biological weapon or a nuclear weapon, and injure or infect 2 million people in a large population center in America and kill 90,000. It'd be a war, wouldn't it? Well, here's one trade that does it every year in their workplace in the hospital. They don't even get an OSHA ticket because they're self-policing. There's no oversight for anybody. They literally get away with murder 
and nobody seems to care as long as insurance is paying the bill. Well, uh, I've been working very hard, and I've had so many doctors call me. They thought they were speaking to me on a private phone, but they were on the radio live, and they threatened to murder me and all sorts. They named themselves and, and the clinics they're working with and say, don't come to our clinic unconscious because you won't leave alive and this sort of thing. I said, well, let me clarify what you're saying. You're, you're saying you're going to murder me if I come in in a helpless state. Of course, they say yes. <laughs> and so there's hundreds of thousands of people who heard them say that. How did being a practicing veterinarian affect your view of health care? Well, first of all, Bonnie, we don't have health insurance. We have life insurance for expensive horses and things like that. But we don't have health insurance for any animals. Um, and so we learn to maximize and, and sort of um, make dependable, predictable production of milk, for instance, uh, by supplementing milk cows, dairy cows. Uh, we, every cow will give a gallon and a half of milk instead of some giving a gallon and a half and some giving a quart and some giving a pint. We can predict that if you feed them this much and give them these supplements, they're all going to give a gallon and a half of milk. And the same thing is true with how many eggs chickens lay, how many pounds of meat they'll make every week as they grow um, by giving these nutrients. We, we were able to eliminate every birth defect you can name and 10 times that many you can't. We've tripled the lifespans of animals by supplementing them. And so uh, when I did this big project with the National Institutes of Health where I did my 20,000 autopsies and um, 20 million chemistries and 20 million slide special things looking for the pollution piece, it was very obvious that um, we were able to eliminate 900 different diseases and all birth defects that still plague people. And so I began to, as a physician, use these veterinary treatments on my human patients. My patients were very kind of giggly about that. They say, if you're, you don't like what your doctors do, or you're not happy with the results or lack of results, go see Wallach. Now, he'll treat you like a dog, but you get better. <laughs> and so we've, we began to doing this in 1978, and sure enough, we're getting the same results in um, people as we did in animals. And so it's very clear that we could, um, and it's their doctors who take them off the heart transplant list. It's their doctors who release them from um, nursing homes when they have uh, Alzheimer's disease and terminal Parkinson's disease. It's their um, doctors who take them off of dialysis when we get them. Even if they haven't urinated in 10 years, we can get them off of dialysis. Uh, if they're getting uh, six dialysis treatments a week because they haven't urinated in 10 years, and the quickest one was two weeks, but it normally takes a couple of months, but the quickest one was two weeks, got them urinating, and another month or so they're off analysis, but it's very easy. Type 2 diabetes, very simple nutritional deficiency. We've known it for 80 years. And so we can take somebody who's been a diabetic, type 2 diabetic, for 30 years, and in 30 days their doctors will say, I don't know why, but you're not a diabetic anymore. Wow, that's incredible. Um, you spent two years in Africa. What were you doing there? Well, yes, uh, I was I was going to go there indefinitely, forever. I was enjoying myself. Uh, Marlon Perkins, who I worked with as a kid in the last couple of years of grade school and all through um, junior high and high school and the first couple of years of um, agricultural college at University of Missouri, I worked with uh, Marlon Perkins at the St. Louis Zoo. He's very famous for the um, uh, Mutual Omaha's Wild Kingdom show. He was the biologist there. And I worked for him as a farm boy. I would do anything he asked me to do. The city boys wouldn't do the nasty stuff, so he always called on me. He got to know me. And as a graduate student in pathology, because I graduated ag school, I was, a, I was a graduate student taking veterinary courses, but I also was taking uh, courses towards my 
um, PhD or the equivalent um, PhD in comparative pathology where I do autopsies in animals and people. And so it was kind of very obvious that I was able to um, help people, treat people, and Perkins loved it. And and when I graduated um, veterinary school, he sent me to Africa for an indefinite period to work on the White Rhino Conservation Project and also the African Elephant Conservation Project. And two years into it, I was prepared to stay in Africa forever. I was having the time of my life. As you can imagine, I caught 200 white rhino, hundreds of elephants, uh, sent the white rhino back here. So if you see a white rhino in a wild animal park or zoo, it's one that I caught, or our offsprings are the ones that I caught. And so he sent me, after two years, he sent me a letter saying, look, we've got this big project from NIH, a uh, big grant, and uh, we're going to be doing autopsies on zoo animals that live in the big cities. They're going to be the canary in the mine, uh, the early warning signal for pollution that might be injuring the people that live in these cities. And because you're a comparative pathologist and you've got your postdoctoral fellowship here in comparative pathology, we want you, and you, you wrote the first paper in a mass dial from pollution, we want you to be the pathologist on the project. So I came back and became the pathologist on the project. That's why they picked me. I was only 24 years old. They could have picked pathologists, I mean, with three PhDs from Harvard Medical School or something like that, but they picked me because I, I was the only one who'd done a, a, the, actually the first uh, work on a mass dial in America from pollution and got it published. So that's why they picked me for that. I'm speaking with veterinarian and naturopathic physician, Dr. Joel Wallach. Today's show, A Stick of Butter a Day Keeps the Doctor Away. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. How can you determine that a person has a specific nutrient deficiency, and how is it that you can link a specific nutrient deficiency to a specific health condition? Okay, well, first of all, that one project, I did 20,000 autopsies. I've done another, oh gosh, another um, 18,000 uh, after that, and other projects, and so about 38,000 autopsies. And you have to appreciate that all the essential nutrients are recorded to be essential nutrients after research, $100 billion worth of research on these nutrients to see if they're required for certain functions in life, what diseases you get when you don't have them in the animal industry. And so all I had to do was do all the testing and uh, samples of organs, uh, cerebral spinal fluid, blood, tissue samples, and uh, we could run and see what nutrients, what vitamins, what amino acids, what fatty acids, what minerals were in there, what fatty acids, and so forth. And, and if they had a certain disease, we knew which ones to really look for, and we got all the clinical records of the people and the animals from the zoos. And so it's very easy to say, oh, well... Uh, this disease is caused in these five different species of vertebrates. Uh, for instance, type 2 diabetes. I, I was starting to find type 2 diabetes in crocodiles. Now, why would a crocodile have a, a, a genetic disease of humans, right? Maybe he ate a Baptist preacher in Africa that had diabetes and got the gene that way. Well, it's a silly thing, but that's what doctors were proposing. Well, it turns out that all vertebrates, regardless if they're a reptile or a bird or a, a mammal or a rat or a human, uh, all vertebrates if they have a nutritional deficiency, we'll get the same disease from the same nutritional deficiency. So you can determine these uh, nutritional deficiencies how? By analyzing organs uh, chemically, for instance? Yes. Uh, we analyze the organs chemically, the skin, the hair, blood, um, vitreous from the eye, uh, cerebral spinal fluid. And again, there's, there's normal levels known. 
and if they're severely low and they have this disease and you look them up in, in the uh, records of the animal research, well, by golly, when you're low in this particular mineral or this vitamin and you have this disease, that disease is caused by deficiency of that mineral, that vitamin. I see. Are birth defects created by defective genes? Well, no, that's one of the questions I ask. Of course, there is an enormous number of birth defects in zoo animals from the big zoos around the United States and Canada and Mexico, and that's because they were feeding them human food. They were feeding them human food, and they're getting all these birth defects just like humans with cleft palate, heart defects of all kinds, muscular dystrophy, cystic fibrosis, um, cerebral palsy. It's kind of interesting to find cerebral palsy uh, in a llama and uh, type 1 diabetes in a flamingo and this sort of stuff. Um, uh, and, of course, we're getting sickle cell anemia and hummingbirds and deer. It's all because they're deficient in the same nutrients in the embryonic stage. And so, for instance, sickle cell anemia uh, in the third to seventh week of pregnancy when the bone marrow is forming, the cells that manufacture the hemoglobin don't form correctly, and so they make dysfunctional hemoglobin. That's why the cells sickle. And it's kind of interesting. I find it in all these different animal species, including hummingbirds and deer and antelope, I also found it in only, not only black people, who were supposed to be a genetic disease, but also in white people. So how do you get a black gene in a white guy, or maybe a white gene in a black guy? Well, it turns out that it's the same disease. It's just um, they call it different names uh, in different people. For instance, in white people, um, sickle cell anemia is called thalassemia. So then these conditions in either ethnicities of people or, or animals are then all caused by nutritional deficiencies. That's what you're saying, right? That is correct. Obviously, infectious diseases are a totally different story. Uh, toxic problems are a totally different story. But when it comes to degenerative diseases, birth defects, they're all caused by nutritional deficiencies. What is epigenetics? I'm actually considered one of the founders or the father of epigenetics, the science of epigenetics. And epigenetics says that your genes require a a variety of things to maximize their function. Um, The medical system believes that genes are autonomous. You put a handful of genes into a bucket of saline solution or warm salt water, and they're going to do their thing. That's not true. They require... 60 essential minerals, 16 vitamins, 12 amino acids, 3 fatty acids to do their thing. And if you're missing any of these 90 essential nutrients, or if they're reduced in amounts significantly below the optimal amounts, uh, you're going to get symptoms and or diseases. And so, uh, again, even in the earliest of stages of, of pregnancy, when you have even Down syndrome, it's reversible. You give the mother the right nutrients. If she's been diagnosed by amniocentesis or by a... Um, uh, ultrasound that the, the embryo has a um, Down syndrome situation, uh, trisomy 21, uh, and you give the 90 cents of nutrients and change the mother's diet, and we've actually reversed Down syndrome before three months of pregnancy. Once the baby's born with Down syndrome, I can add 50 or more IQ points to them so that they can function and be independent and hold jobs and learn how to work computers and uh, they can get driver's licenses and do their own banking and things. And I've actually been the best men at uh, some of the weddings of some of these um, uh, kids with uh, Down syndrome when I would help the girl and the boy increase their um, IQs where they can function in a working situation. Uh, they wanted to get married, and, of course, I was their best man. 
So what you're saying then is that genes require nutrients for their full expression, is that it? Well said. And then, of course, because of the work that I did, um, I came out with the first major book on epigenetics, and um, the subtitle I came up with based on all the research with genes that had failed and all the research using nutrients to solve problems that were thought to be genetic uh, the subtitle is of my book, Epigenetics, is The Death of the Genetic Theory of Disease Transmission, another failed medical theory. So you're saying that the whole theory of a genetic transmission of disease is not correct? You are correct. That is not correct. <laughs> so then uh, you've mentioned 90 essential nutrients. Would then taking all 90 essential nutrients maximize genetic potential? Oh, Absolutely. Because genes, DNA, RNA, and telomeres, little end caps in your chromosomes, require these nutrients to maximize their ability to perform. And uh, this down at the biochemical level inside the cells, and I was the first guy to use um, electron microscopes back in the day um, for pathology and setting pathology at the subcellular chemical level. And uh, most people at that time were using it for anatomy and that sort of thing, but I, I use it for pathology. And so it was very, very clear that these nutrient deficiencies were causing biochemical defects, um, which were then misinterpreted as genetic problems. Is there a such a thing as a genetic defect, even if a person is uh, taking all 90 essential nutrients, do you think? Well, it's possible for people to get a, um, a disease that is thought to be genetically transmitted, even if they're supplementing because they can't absorb that old adage, you are what you eat, is not true. You are what you absorb, and so you can take all the nutrients you want, but if you're not absorbing, you're still going to get those deficiency diseases. Now, what would cause a person to not be able to absorb the nutrients? Well, in the industrialized world, including Europe and the big cities in Asia and, and um, Africa and the big cities in South America and Mexico and so forth, um, the most common cause of malabsorption, inability to efficiently absorb nutrients, of all kinds, is gluten intolerance. It actually causes a loss of the villi. They lose about 95% of the absorptive surface of the lining of the intestine. It's not an allergy to wheat. It's actually a intolerance, just like nobody's allergic to poison ivy, but everybody's intolerant of it. And so um, what you get is a contact enteritis when you have a gluten intolerance. You put poison ivy on your skin, you get a contact dermatitis. It's the same principle. Now, the nice thing about a gluten intolerance, you get on a gluten-free diet and take the 90 cents of nutrients, your intestine will heal. The villi over time will grow back. If you're 60, 70, 80 years old, it might take a year and a half to grow them back. Uh, if you're under 10 years of age, it'll take you only a couple of months to grow back. And, of course, in kids, uh, they'll see, uh, even though it might take a couple of months to regrow the villi, they're going to see a dramatic, easily observed benefit from a gluten-free diet and the 90 cents of nutrients in a couple of weeks, like getting rid of asthma they've had their whole life in two weeks' time is gone on a gluten-free diet and supplementing with the 90 cents of nutrients. And in adult humans, uh, you're looking at it might take a year and a half to go from a severely damaged small intestine from the gluten intolerance uh, to normal, but it might, you might see some really significant recognizable benefit of a gluten-free diet and the 90 cents of nutrients in, in six to eight weeks. So that having been said, you put a lot of importance on gluten intolerance. Oh, absolutely. When people have multiples of diseases, and you see this all the time, where people have 
diabetes, they have arthritis, they have high blood pressure, they've got congestive heart failure, they've got low thyroid, they've got macular degeneration, uh, they've got back problems, ruptured discs and peripheral neuropathies, and um, they may have kidney failure and they're on dialysis. Man, these guys got terrible genes. They've got 18 diseases here. They're seeing six specialists. They're on 21 prescription drugs. You get them on a gluten-free diet, get them on the 90 cents of nutrients, and all of those diseases will go away because they're all nutritional deficiencies caused by malabsorption. Is it possible to get all of your nutrition from food? And if not, why not? It's absolutely impossible, Bonnie, to get your nutrition from food, and here's why. For thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years, the average poor guy, the slave, the subsistence farmer, would throw wood ashes into the gardens for fertilizer. And this happened all over the world. So somehow everybody around the world who was using wood for fuel, which is everybody, 5,000, 6,000, 7,000 years ago, up until just a couple hundred years ago, wood was the universal fuel. And they would throw the wood ashes in the gardens and it would fertilize the plants to get more yield and stronger, healthier plants. The bugs wouldn't eat them because they were healthier plants. Well, it turns out that wood ashes are not ashes. 95% and 98% of the wood ashes, that powder we would call wood ashes, are really minerals that the trees sucked up out of the ground. You burn the wood, but the minerals inside the cells uh, of the tree, the wood, um, would just drop out as powder in the bottom of the stove or the fireplace. And they might have a little gray color or black because there was some unburned carbon because he dampened down the fire at night so he'd have coals to start the fire in the morning, save a couple of matches. And, um, but nobody knew they were, the plants were absorbing these minerals. And when they were eating the pumpkins and the tomatoes and the okra and the beets and the, and the onions and the peas and beans and corn, that they were getting these minerals that the plant had soaked up from the ground because they were being fertilized with these plant minerals, a.k.a. wood ashes. People didn't know that then. They don't know it now. Even people who are environmentalists and professors of agriculture at the big universities don't know it. Okay, so you're learning something here that only God and you know right now, right? And uh, that's why my book's in the Smithsonian Institute, because I was able to figure this out. And... Um, what happened was this went on for thousands of years until 3 o'clock in the afternoon, Monday, September 4th, 1882. I know the exact moment and place because it was in the newspapers. Every newspaper in the world had this story in it the very next day because we had the telegraph. And the story went out and every newspaper printed the story. And basically um, what happened was at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, Monday, September 4th, 1882, on Pearl Street in New York City in the bluff overlooking the construction of Brooklyn Bridge, Thomas Edison pulled the switch in the first commercial electric generating plant. And within 10 years, every town, city, municipality in the industrialized world converted from wood as universal fuel to electricity. Now here comes the ultimate question, Bonnie. When you, when you fuel your home with electricity, how many wood ashes are left over to put in your gardens every morning? Zero, nada, zippo, none. And what did people replace that traditional source that they've been using for thousands of years to obtain their nutritional minerals from, the wood ashes, what did they replace that with? Nothing, because they didn't know they were getting any nutritional minerals. They didn't even know that concept back then. And so they didn't even know they were getting those nutritional minerals from the wood ashes being put into the gardens. I'm speaking with veterinarian and naturopathic physician, Dr. Joel Wallach. Today's show, A Stick of Butter a Day Keeps the Doctor Away. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, the story gets worse here. Because politicians then, or as they are now, beat their chest like gorillas and say, hey, 
you vote for me, I'm going to get electricity in every home. And so they kept their word. And there was the TVA, Tennessee Valley Authority, there was the Hoover Dam in the Colorado River, and um, every household had electricity, they had factories that were working 24-7, uh, no worries about power. And there was an unintended consequence, which at first everybody thought was a great thing. And that was flood control. Well, not only did human beings and animals get their minerals from plant minerals, a.k.a. wood ashes, going into the gardens, but also for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, the most fertile, the most expensive farmlands were always bottomland, floodplains, river valleys, river bottoms, because every spring the rivers would flood. And when the flood water would recede, it would leave silt behind, which is mud, minerals from plants and uh, up in the mountains, and when the snow would melt, it would take these minerals and bring them downstream. And when the floodwaters would recede, the silt was left, and farmers would plow this into the field. Free, good fertilizer that that valley had been getting for thousands of years before man came along. And so it's replenishing the minerals by plowing in that silt. Well, now we had flood control, which everybody thought was a great thing. So there's no more flooding. So we're not getting the silt from spring floods anymore. We're not getting the wood ashes anymore. And so our soils became extremely minerally deficient because every time you grow a crop, the plants will suck up the minerals. Suck up the minerals, suck up the minerals. And after four or five years, there's no more minerals in the soil because the plants have been sucking them out, not any going back in. And what we get from that? Well, certainly our foods don't have the minerals in them anymore, and two-thirds of the 90 essential nutrients are minerals. But also, um, we got a very, very big problem here. All these degenerative diseases, but also we killed the ocean. Because what was the food that fed the ocean? The silt coming down the rivers that got through and didn't get in the floodplains went all the way down to the deltas and out into the gulfs and the, and the oceans and the seas, and spelled S-E-A, right, seas, and the, these nutrients, these minerals, then fed the little plankton and the algae, which fed the little fish, which then fed the medium-sized fish, which fed the big fish, which fed us. Well, now it's not worth a, a fishing group uh, and, and their fleet to go out, try and catch fish and come back, because they can't even make enough money from the fish they might catch, because there's no fish out there anymore. There's no more food for them, because the ocean is dead, not from pollution because they've cut off the food supply by damming up the rivers for electricity. Well, just as a quick follow-up to that, what do you think about Fukushima? Now, there's some pollution for you. Well, absolutely, and of course, it's kind of interesting. Uh, I live in San Diego, and and uh, you go down to the beach in San Diego Bay or on the Pacific Ocean, and guess what? Here's all these boats and things that float all the way from Japan, and so you know that there's radiation in the ocean. And so... Fortunately, the ocean is a big place, and, and it's able to, um, what should I say, soak up and neutralize a certain amount of that radiation. But I would not be uh, eating food from the southern part of um, Fukushima, because that's where all the radiation took place. With regard to the 90 essential nutrients, you've mentioned uh, 60 minerals, 16 vitamins, 12 amino acids, and 3 fatty acids. 
How and when were the 90 essential nutrients identified? Is this something you did, or has this information been available for a long time? Well, going back 300 years ago, Bonnie, um, people knew, uh, fishermen knew, that if they ate cabbage every day, they could stay out in the ocean for a couple of months without coming home and not getting scurvy. They didn't know what it was in the cabbage that they were getting to prevent scurvy, but if they didn't do that, if they just ate salt pork or ate fish they were catching, they would get scurvy. And millions of sailors, particularly from England and Japan, died over a decade uh, in the days of sail from just scurvy. And then, so they knew uh, there's some concept there, and they learned about um, uh, vitamin C. And then, of course, there was beriberi, which is another killer of sailors who stayed out for a long time. And it was actually found in the um, rice bran and brown rice. It was discovered um, with, if you ate white rice, you were going to get beriberi. And if you ate brown rice, you could cure it or prevent it. And same with pellagra, another disease of sailors, which is, uh, again, uh, vitamin B3, niacin, um, is found uh, in the bran of rice. And not in vegetables and not in meat or anything like that, but uh, in certainly in uh, the brand of rice and uh, pellagra. I have a lot of fun with medical doctors today, Bonnie. I, I will ask them, have you ever seen any beriberi or pellagra or scurvy? Oh, no, that's only found in third world countries. We don't have that in America anymore. Well, half the people they see have those things. They come to me and say, well, my doctor's been treating me for 10 years. They can't figure out what's wrong. Well, I look at them, find out what they got, and most of them will have plaguer, they'll have scurvy, they'll have beriberi. In fact, um, that, um, for instance, an example would be congestive heart failure is caused by deficiency of a single vitamin. Okay? You take those vitamins, and guess what? Congestive heart failure goes away in a week. And then there's actually a little kid that called me about on the radio the other week and um, this little kid is like five years old, has cardiomyopathy heart disease. That's where I did 1,700 autopsies in China on kids under the age of 10, died of cardiomyopathy heart disease, a deficiency of a single mineral. And they want to do a heart transplant in this kid instead of just giving them the 90 centimeters, just a little bit of extra of that mineral because they're ignorant. They don't know. They, they don't spend any time learning about nutrition because they believe everything's genetic. Okay? So those are the sort of things. And it's been over time. Um, starting about um, back in the early 1800s, there was a guy by the name of Schusler. He was a hospitalist, one of the first hospitalists, uh, who, who was a, a physician who worked in hospitals. And he was very detail-oriented, and he would make a list of symptoms of the people who would come in there. If they were indigent and nobody would collect their bodies, no families would come to collect the body and bury them. If they died in the hospital, he would cremate them, he'd burn them, and then analyze the ashes compared to people who were killed by accidents, and, and he, he'd cremate some of them, and he would analyze the ashes for their mineral content. He said, you know, everybody who has this particular disease is deficient in this mineral. His name was Schusler. Schusler's cell salts. He found 13 diseases that he could tag to a certain mineral deficiency, and he came up with these Schusler's cell salts, and then he'd see people come in with those diseases, and he'd give them that cell salt with that mineral, and the disease would go away. And he was the first one to think in those terms. That was back in the early, about 1833. Oh, that's interesting. Is there a difference between human food and animal food? Well, not really. Um, human food and animal food, 
uh, has to have certain things, and all vertebrates have to have certain things in the food, right? We're talking about proteins and, and um, minerals, uh, essential fats, vitamins, and um, these are brought into our bodies through consuming of food. Well, the same thing is true for all vertebrates, whether you're an animal or a human being. Okay, the same thing is true. And again, if you're deficient in a particular nutrient, any vertebrate will get the same disease, whether you're a crocodile or a hummingbird or a deer or a human being or a fish or a turtle or a flamingo. And this is what I learned in doing all those autopsies. That's why my book's in the Smithsonian Institute, because of those kind of findings. Nobody had known those things before I did all that work. It was really a, a real um, opportunity for me to learn that sort of stuff. And, and it's kind of interesting. Uh, if you go and check one of those books out that resulted from that 1,200-page book, if you check out one of those books from a medical school library or scientific department's library, you'll have to leave $1,800 as a deposit to, to make sure you're going to bring the book back. If they're new and they haven't been opened, they're still in the wrappers, they sell for $25,000 each money because it would take a, a billion dollars to redo that study. And they gave me $25 million, only a kid, you know, 24 years old. And so they gave me $25 million to do the study. It was a lot, a lot of money back then. And so it, it would take a billion dollars to redo that study. And so that's why the libraries, medical libraries are willing to pay $25,000 for each book. One of the things I was getting at with that question, and I should have phrased it differently, is domesticated animals, they produce food to feed mm -hmm. them with, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Does that animal food that's commercially produced for animals, does mm -hmm. that differ than what we're fed from the grocery store? Oh, yeah. Well, our food, let's say you buy a head of cabbage from the grocery store, you buy carrots from the grocery store, you buy potatoes from the grocery store. Um, depending on where they were grown, they might have three minerals. They might have 12, they might have 18, they might have 25 or 30 or 40 or 50 or 60. But most of them will have less than 10 because plants only need three to give the farmer enough yield to justify planting that crop. All vertebrates, including humans, require 60 minerals. Now, in animals, we make sure they get all 60 minerals. We supplement them with that because we don't have health insurance for them. Okay? In humans, we have health insurance, and nobody seems to care. They say, well, why would I spend $3 a day for all those nutrients and give up my cup of exotic coffee? And I can just eat well. My doctor says I can just eat well and get everything I need. Well, the doctor just gets a lot of patience because he's using them as an ATM machine by telling them, don't supplement. You're wasting your money. What about diet? What foods should we be eating and what should we be avoiding? Well, one of the most valuable foods is eggs. What you think about it, Bonnie? Have you ever seen that little white spot on the top of a yolk of an egg? Yes. About the size of a zero on a printed page. That is the fertilized embryo. Okay, that's an embryo. And at the end exactly of 21 days of incubation, that chick has consumed all the yolk and all the white of the egg and pecks out a hole to get out of there because he's looking for food. He's hungry. He's eating everything. So he's... But that little chick has a beating heart, lungs, a liver that works, kidneys that work, a brain that works, eyes that work, a digestive system, and um, skin and feathers and joints with cartilage and ligaments and tendons, connective tissue and muscles, all from, remember, genes can't do it without the raw materials. And so the food in that egg was perfect enough to create and allow the genes to express themselves and, and produce all of those different tissues. Now, if you just put water in the egg, say take that little embryo off, 
that yolk, throw the yolk and the, and the white of the egg away, and then take an egg, puncture a little hole, dump all that with a suction, suck out the yolk and, and the white of the egg, and just fill it with saline solution and put that little embryo back in there. In 21 days, open that egg up, and a petri dish, you can look at it in the microscope, and all you'll have is that same little embryo, which is now starved to death, right? It hasn't grown by one cell because it can't without all the nutrition that was in that egg. And so any doctor who tells you not to eat eggs should be put in jail because it provides nutrients to us we can't get from any other food. And um, by giving up eggs, by demonizing the cholesterol in eggs and the saturated fat in eggs and cream and butter and, and red meat and so forth, doctors created an enormous number of diseases because these are essential nutrients. Okay, a cholesterol deficiency results in Alzheimer's disease. It's not, Alzheimer's disease is not caused by aluminum. It's one of the stupidest theories that doctors ever came up with. I'm speaking with veterinarian and naturopathic physician, Dr. Joel Wallach. Today's show, A Stick of Butter a Day Keeps the Doctor Away. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Well, I was just about to ask you about cholesterol. Now, I've heard you say that lard, butter, and cream are good for you, and that oils, perhaps including olive oil, aren't. Is that right? You got that exactly right, Bonnie. Oils oxidize and turn into trans fats, heterocycamines, and acrylamides. And because of that, um, we have begun to kill ourselves, okay? Americans are dying younger and younger and younger. Our children will be the first generation of Americans that do not live as long as their parents. Because when grandma babysits the kids on the weekend and parents are out on the beach sunning or doing whatever they're going to do, the grandmas give microwave popcorn, for instance, to these kids to entertain them while they're watching TV or as a reward for raking the lawn or something. Well, when you microwave the popcorn, the margarine that's in there that heats up and pops the corn turns into trans fats, heterocyclic means, and acrylamides. And 50,000 kids under the age of 10 every year get heart attacks as a result of consuming microwave popcorn, and 20,000 of those 50,000 die. So grandmas are killing their grandkids, and parents are killing their kids by giving them microwave popcorn and theater popcorn and salad dressings and cooking oils and mayonnaise because all those things oxidize and turn into trans fats, heterocycamines, and acrylamides. Now, so then you're implying that lard, cream, and butter don't oxidize and turn into trans fats? Is that what you're saying? That is correct because they're not oils. They don't have double bonds. They don't have incomplete bonds. They're all saturated fats. They're quite safe. You could put a stick of butter out for a week. It might get soft and melt, but it doesn't oxidize. You cut an apple in half, and in a half hour with the cut surface exposed to the air, it turns brown. Well, what is it turning brown that apple is oxidizing. It's kind of like steel railroad tracks rusting. It just happens in 10, 15, 20 minutes, a cut surface of an apple. What is it in the apple that's oxidizing? It's the oil in the apple. Most people don't know there's oil in an apple. But the hard skin keeps oxygen from contacting it. And once you cut that skin off and you expose the white flesh to the air, the oxygen, it oxidizes in just a few moments. So here you go to a restaurant and they've got oil and vinegar and a little kind of a tray thing on the tables and they're nice white and red checkered tablecloths and everybody's in there killing themselves by making their salad dressings with the oil whether it's olive oil or, or canola oil whatever it is they're killing themselves by using oil and vinegar for salad dressings or vinaigrette for salad dressings or cooking oils now if you have a salad do you dress it with anything 
Uh, yes, I actually, you can use, uh, for instance, um, the vinegar that's made from grapes, okay? Um, there, there's no oil in grapes, okay? And so you can actually do that. But if you use the vinegar made from uh, wheat, you get a gluten-containing vinegar, okay? So the balsamic vinegar that comes from grapes is okay, it's safe, but white vinegar that's in mustard and ketchups and on the table with the salad dressing isn't. And, of course, um, chicken salad sandwiches, egg salad sandwiches, tuna salad sandwiches, the mayonnaise they use in there has oil in it, and it oxidizes and turns into trans fats, heterocycamines, and acrylamides. Sandwiches will kill you. What about, uh, what about apple cider vinegar? Apple cider vinegar is okay if it's truly apple cider vinegar instead of flavored white vinegar, which is then made from wheat. You have to read labels and ask questions when you go out to eat. Don't let the cook kill you. You travel a lot. For instance, when I asked you where you lived, you told me you lived on Delta Airlines. So how do you maintain a healthy diet with your lifestyle? Well, it's a very good question. And um, what I've learned to do, Bonnie, is to be highly selective on what I eat. It doesn't matter where I eat. I can eat McDonald's um, and I get poached eggs for breakfast any time of the day because now they're serving breakfast 24-7. So I can get what they call round eggs at McDonald's, which is a poached egg and butter. I'll have four of those for breakfast any time of the day. And then I can get uh, lettuce wrap burgers with no mayonnaise or no sauces on it, but I want lettuce and tomatoes and onions and the lettuce wrap on it, so I'm not getting anything with vinegar or uh, uh, mayonnaise that has oxidized oil in them. I'm not getting the bun with any gluten in it. And I can have a little glass of red wine a steakhouse and get a nice steak. And I like baked sweet potatoes with butter. I can have that for breakfast, or I can have baked sweet potatoes with butter for dinner. I like salad bars at these big restaurants. Uh, so I can get uh, the beets. I like uh, beets, and I also uh, like um, um, steamed carrots and things like that. I don't like medleys of things. Or the, or like you got six or eight different um, beans and things in there because I use wheat to, to actually thicken the sauce. They use wheat to hold together meatloaf and meatballs, use wheat to thicken gravies and soups. And so you have to ask a lot of questions. Now, you've brought this up before, but there was a television show called Wild Kingdom on television. I was, I was surprised to be reminded about that. I haven't thought about that show since I was a kid. And you worked for the host of that show when you were a kid. That's correct, Marlon Perkins. I said earlier that... Um, this was a, a wonderful, wonderful man, uh, Marlon Perkins, who's a biologist, um, worked at the Lincoln Park Zoo in Chicago, and then he moved on to the St. Louis Zoo, where I met him. And um, uh, he was a great biologist, and, and he recognized the value of that study that I did and found the first mass style from pollution since he was one of my non-relative uh, male mentors. I gave him a copy of that article, and he was the one who sent me to Africa to work in the White Rhino conservation project and the African Elephant Conservation Project. And when he got that grant to study pollution as a cause of disease in zoo animals in the big cities and also, you know, the concept of the canary in the mine, so they're going to use these different species of animals uh, that might be sensitive to pollution and give us some kind of clue uh, before we died uh, what to do about different pollutants. And so he wanted me to be the pathologist on the project. And so um, Wild Kingdom has a very special place in my heart. And uh, uh, 
I was his veterinarian for many years. And I just wanted to reiterate that you are the author of an important 1,200-page book entitled Diseases of Exotic Animals that is now in the Smithsonian Museum. And how did you come to write this book, and what's it about? Well, that was part of the studies I did with these 20,000 autopsies in these zoos in the big cities around the United States to, to looking for pollution. But I'm finding all these diseases that were not genetic, were not from pollution, but were just simple nutritional deficiencies because all the animals in the zoo were being fed the very best human food. And they're getting all the deficiencies. And so I saw every deficiency, every disease you can think of. And I got all the clinical records from each of the animals in the zoo because they were captives. So there was clinical records if they were ever treated for something, what they were being fed. And the same thing with the people I was doing autopsies on as a comparative pathologist. And uh, getting my postdoctoral fellowship, which is kind of the equivalent of a PhD degree. And it was uh, very, very easy to determine that these diseases were not caused by pollution or genetics, but just simple nutritional deficiency diseases. It was quite the project, and that's why it's in the Smithsonian Institute as a national treasure. Could we talk about a few unhealthy conditions? And I wanted to get your comments sure. on it. What about cancer? Well, you know, cancer, Bonnie, is a self inflicted disease, it's not genetic in any way, shape, or form. There's certain Pollutants like radiation can certainly increase your risk of certain cancers. Smoking can certainly increase your risk of cancers. Eating processed meats, deli slices, sandwich meats, pastrami, pepperoni, spam, those things can increase your risk of cancer. Um, cooking your meat well done where the fat is burnt uh, increases risk of breast cancer by 462%. And, uh, this was a big study, the Harvard Nurses Health Study, 90,000 nurses over 20 years, and this was part of that study that eating meat cooked well done or, or burnt increases your risk of breast cancer by 462%. I mean, that's, that's horrible. When doctors say, eat your meat cooked well done, Lucy, because we've got to watch out for salmonella and E. coli. Well, I'd rather deal with salmonella and E. coli, get the runs. And so it's you know, easy to deal with that as opposed to getting cancer. Well, obviously, you're probably not in big favor of a barbecue, but let's say, uh, let's say you want to cook yourself a hamburger. How do you do it? Well, I love barbecue, and um, being from Missouri, we barbecue, right? And growing up on a little beef farm, we ate a lot of meat in the barbecue. What we would do is take a stainless steel cookie sheet, put it on the grill, cover it deeply with a coarse kosher salt, big coarse kosher salt crystals, and put the hamburgers on top of that and then close the top. And they got smoky and taste and everything. And like we could cook them medium rare without the outside being burnt and so forth. And that's how we ate them and our steaks and chicken and fish and everything. So we never had to worry about the, the flames hitting the meat and burning it. So what is it that prevents the, uh, the, the, the chard? The, is it the salt or the, uh, or the stainless steel plate? The stainless steel plate because, well, if you didn't put the salt on there to draw some of the fluids out of the meat or the fish or the uh, chicken or so forth, uh, it would stick to the pan. And so that was just sort of, uh, you're getting a twofer there. You're getting the salt flavor, uh, plus you're getting um, a, a easily cooked food that is not stuck to the stainless steel plant pan. And... Um, it's one of those things where you're going to be much, much healthier to use the salt because it's the raw material to make stomach acid. Uh, there is no such thing as acid reflux. It really should be called lack of acid reflux. Your stomach acid keeps your um, stomach environment sterile so you don't get any yeast or bacteria growing in there because it's the yeast and bacteria that ferment carbohydrates that turn um, into gas is what causes reflux. So it's a lack of acid reflux, not acid reflux. 
Now, what about obesity? I was uh, quite surprised to hear you say that uh, obesity could possibly be due to a nutritional defect? Yeah, it's due to a nutritional deficiency. Uh, being overweight or obese has nothing to do with eating too much or lack of exercise. In fact, we get people to lose anywhere from a half a pound to two pounds a day in our program. We've been doing it, gosh, for 38 years, since 1978. And it's a very easy disease complex to prevent and reduce and eliminate um, just by supplementing with all 90 cents of nutrients. And we have some accelerators, um, which you can use to lose a half pound to two pounds a day. But you have to be able to absorb all this stuff. So you have to get gluten-free, and usually people who are overweight or, and obese or gluten intolerant, they can't absorb the nutrients, and so they gain the weight because they can't absorb the nutrients, even if they're supplementing with them. So you've got to get them gluten-free. And uh, even just being gluten-free, they'll lose 10, 15, 20 pounds in a couple of weeks. And then you throw in the 90 cents of nutrients with a little accelerator, and, and I get people lose 140 pounds in 100 days. They'll lose 60 pounds in 30 days. They'll lose... 350 pounds in seven months, and they'll never gain the weight back as long as they stay on the 90 cents of nutrients. Uh, what do you mean by an accelerator? Um, well, the accelerator is a, it's a amino acid mix that we put into a liquid, and they put a dropper full under their tongue. It was absorbed through their oral tissues, and it actually um, is the raw materials for your adrenal glands and your pituitary to make hormones. And... Um, uh, as a result, instead of losing a half a pound every couple of days, you'll lose a half pound a day. What about allergies? Are they affected by nutrients? Well, food allergies, which are very common, are caused by lack of stomach acid because your pepsin enzyme won't work in a neutral or an alkaline environment. So even if you just get your you know, pH 1 is the most acid, 14 is the most alkaline, 7 is neutral, your stomach environment should be like 1.2. I mean, it's got to be like car battery acid to, for everything to work properly and to stay sterile. Not fertility-wise, but to stay sterile in your stomach so you don't get reflux. And uh, basically, uh, salt is the raw material for your stomach to make stomach acid, hydrochloric acid. And then your pepsin will work to digest proteins down to amino acids. Nobody gets an allergy to amino acids, but they get... Allergies to partially digested proteins, which we call polypeptides. And so it's not having enough stomach acid, the enzymes won't work. And so if you salt your food heavily, the odds of you getting an um, allergy to foods is almost zero. And what about Alzheimer's? Well, again, Alzheimer's disease is a deficiency of a certain nutrient, which doctors have demonized so the Procter & Gamble could sell Crisco. And the ingredients and the, and the products they were demonizing was cholesterol and saturated fat. So that's why they demonized uh, things like cream and butter and eggs and, and lard, which were common for grandma. And grandma didn't want to give that stuff up. We've been, we've been using this for 20 generations. Why would I give it up? And so Procter & Gamble had to demonize those things. And they, uh, they found, oh, there's a universal connection here. They all have cholesterol and saturated fat in them. Let's just demonize cholesterol and saturated fat. And they did so they could sell Crisco. Dr. Joel Wallach, thank you very much. Well, Bonnie, thank you so much for uh, letting me share with your listening audience. You're, just, uh, you're a great lady. We thank you for helping save America and look forward to working together with you many times in the future. Speaking with Dr. Joel Wallach. 
Today's show has been A Stick of Butter a Day Keeps the Doctor Away. Dr. Wallach is a veterinarian, naturopathic physician, and holds a postdoctorate fellowship in comparative pathology, as well as being an author and lecturer. He is the author of many books, including Dead Doctors Don't Lie, Epigenetics, The Death of the Genetic Theory of Disease Transmission, Black Gene Lies, and Rhino Express, The Saving of the White Rhino. He played a major role in the development of the market of liquid vitamin mineral supplements. For more information about Dr. Wallach and his nutrition program, call 1-888-311-4311, and Marge can help you. That's 1-888-311-4311. Visit www.90help.my90forlife.com. That's the numbers 90help.my90forlife.com. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yaromako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at gunsandbutter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Follow us on Twitter at GNB Radio. Hey, yo, these are some serious times that we live in, G. And our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now the question is, are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? Now if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, then universally we will stand and divided we will fall because love conquers all. You understand what I'm saying? This is a call for all you sleeping souls. Wake up and take control of your own cipher and be on the lookout for the spirit sniper trying to steal your life. You know what I'm saying? Look with inside yourself for peace. Give thanks, live life, and release. You dig me? You got me? <laughs>